Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. I read this disturbing note in The Economist. People who start their working lives without work are more likely to have lower wages and have a harder time finding jobs later in life. These people have a so-called wage penalty of as much as 20% levied against them when they can't find work as a teen or young adult, and that wage penalty will last for up to 20 years. This makes Connecticut's teen unemployment rate of 15.5% especially troubling. What's strange is those numbers look worse in some of the states that we keep hearing young people are leaving Connecticut for, like North Carolina. Today, where we live, we'll look at some of the possible side effects and long-term implications of chronic youth unemployment. We'll also find out what it means for the wider economy, both here in Connecticut and across the U.S. So how old were you when you got your first job? How is that experience valuable? Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Coming up later in the program, we'll be joined by Bruce Tuggan, an author whose new book is called Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, How to Teach the Missing Basics to Today's Young Talent. Maybe throughout the course of our conversation, we'll get to that, what skills young people need to do better in the job market right now. But first, to set up a little bit of what we're talking about today, Drew DeSilver, senior writer at Pew Research Center, joins us by phone. Drew, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Alicia Modestino, who's an associate professor of public policy and economics at Northeastern University. Hello, Alicia. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I'm going to start with you first, Drew, and I'd like to set a little statistical backdrop uh, for us here. Uh, in your article, The Fading of the Teen Summer Job, you write that since 1948, teen summer employment has been consistent, but this started to change in the early 1990s. So why don't you talk about this first? I mean, we we think a lot about youth employment being around the summertime when they're off school. How has this been changing over the course of the last couple of decades? Well, it, it's true that uh, teen employment does peak in the summertime because teens aren't in school, but it used to be uh, back in the, in the sort of pre, not pre-industrial age, but the, the height of the industrial age, that uh, most, a majority of teens, uh, at least half of teens, worked at least part of the year, either year-round or after school or, or, in, or in the summer. And you started to see that drop in the, uh, in the late, uh, after the, the early 1990s recession, you, you started to see teen employment did not quite recover as much as uh, as it had in years past. It, you would typically see in recessions, teens would often be the, the first people laid off, or, or their jobs would be the first ones to be cut, but then when the economy picked up again, the, the, the jobs that teens filled picked right back up uh, to their previous levels. That didn't happen after the 1990 uh, recession, and uh, every every time we've had a recession since then, we've seen the the uh, the share of all teens who have who are employed either in the summer or throughout the rest of the year ratchet downward and never pick up from uh, to the previous levels. And we're looking now. Is, I'm, I'm looking at some numbers here. Uh, as as recently as 1998, uh, uh, nearly half of teens uh, were employed. Uh, 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 at some point, at some point in that year. Now, now that step is down to 
less than 30 percent so, uh, of teens employed. So, so what do we know about what's happening here, Drew? Obviously, we haven't seen recovery after the two recessions, the one in the 1990s and the one, one more recently. What can we point out to say this is why this is happening? Well, uh, economists who studied this, and th- this is not a, a, uh, a trend that is unique to the United States. This is something that many industrialized countries around the world have seen uh, happen. So we, we're, we're thinking that it's, there's something broader going on here. But uh, labor economists who study this have come up with uh, any number of explanations, uh, none of which everyone agrees on, as, as you often expect with economists. <laughs> but uh, some of the, the factors that uh, people have identified are uh, the decline of sort of the entry-level manufacturing jobs that a lot of teens could get uh, in their high school or just after high school years. Um, a lot of teens, uh, and when we say teens, that's you know we're talking about people ages 16 to 19. Just to clarify, um, a lot of teens are starting school earlier. Uh, in many cases, before Labor Day, and uh, school is extending into the summer. Uh, a lot of teens are doing more more summer type education programs than they used to. Uh, they may be starting college sooner. Um, also, uh, teens are doing a lot of more community service, unpaid community service type work, uh, perhaps because they're they're public-spirited, perhaps to burnish their college resumes, maybe a little bit of both. But uh, that does not count as, unemploy- as employment because you're not being paid, even if you're, if you're working. And uh, something else that affects a lot of people is the rise of the unpaid internship uh, uh, you may be working for uh, as an intern, but if you're not getting paid, you are not counted as being employed, and that has probably cut into the numbers too. But the effect of any of these uh, any of these factors, how much, uh, how relevant uh, or how important any one of them is, is something that's very hotly debated among economists. So, Alicia, as we look at numbers like this, why why does this matter so much? I mean, what are some of the long term trends that we worry about if we see a drop in youth employment as we have? Yeah, well, I think there's two sides to the story. Um, so it's interesting also to look at that the share of um, teens who are in the labor force who are even just participating in the labor force has been declining over time. So um, as Drew mentioned, you know, over half of teens were participating in the labor force. Even as recently as 2000, about 45% were participating in the labor force. Now we're down to about a third. And why is that important to look at labor force participation that's because labor force participation can be either voluntary or involuntary. And we've certainly seen sort of two stories emerging. One is a story of teens who are opting out of the labor force in favor of volunteering, unpaid internships, other extracurricular activities. These obviously are teens who are more likely to be privileged, more likely to be going on to college. I don't worry so much about that story. But there's another side to this, which is, those who want to be working and simply can't find jobs. And it's this latter group who don't have the resources to tap alternative sources of what economists call human capital that's really stoked fears of a lost generation of teenagers. And just to give you a statistic here, um, when teens report that they're unemployed, the government asks them, why are you unemployed? And the share of teens who are reporting that they're unemployed because they're just entering the labor force, so they're just getting that first job, has jumped from just 22% in 2000 to over 55% as of 2012, 2014, 2015. So teens who want to work are having a really hard time finding that first job. 
So what are the big reasons you're noticing for this, Alicia? I mean, obviously, there's the problem with unemployment in the nation uh, writ large, and you end up with an awful lot of people who have college degrees in their 30s and 40s and people who've decided that they have to work longer at life past the age of 65. Maybe they're getting some of these jobs. Is that a part of it? Or what, what else are we seeing here, Alicia? Yeah, I think there's several factors at work. So, you know, on the one side, um, there are that a lot of the typical teen jobs are drying up. So think Blockbuster, right? Nobody, there are no more Blockbuster <laughs> movie rental stores. I, I'm not even sure most people know what you're talking about. Yeah, Blockbuster, I forget what that is. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of the jobs that teens used to hold just aren't there anymore. So there's a bunch of declining industries. Drew mentioned manufacturing. A lot of these kinds of retail jobs, even when you go to the grocery store now, you have the option of checking out you know, through an automated uh, uh, grocery store line there. So that reduces the number of those types of jobs that are there. But what's also happening is that teens are facing greater competition. So you mentioned older workers, which is one source of competition. Another one is immigrants, so a lot of landscaping jobs, kitchen worker type jobs, um, uh, low-skill healthcare jobs are taken now by immigrants. And we're even seeing that 20 to 24-year-olds are taking the jobs that were typically held by teenagers. And in part, this is because more of them are combining school and work as they're trying to finance a college education. So you find more 20 to 24-year-olds taking those waitressing jobs, those lifeguarding jobs. And when we ask employers about this and we say, you know, why are you hiring college students or why are you hiring, you know, older young adults, they say, because we can. You know, so exactly what you were pointing to, that, you know, as these jobs have shrunk in number, you know, those that are getting squeezed down into these jobs are you know, the 20 to 24-year-olds, the immigrants, the older um, American worker, and the teens are getting squeezed right out of the job market. It's so funny you mentioned Blockbuster. I just have to say that amongst my age cohort, the Generation Xers, many, many of us held jobs in record stores. Those just don't exist anymore. Let's go to the phones. Bill in Madison. Hi, Bill. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi, yeah. I was going to say I got my first W-2 job at age 15, uh, 1981. Um, Of course, I worked before that babysitting. My kids, the only work they do is under the table babysitting and things like that. They're elite athletes and college and elite uh, high school. They don't have time to work. It's not even a possibility. There's no time to work. Um, But the thing is, the other thing is the bottom has dropped out of the bottom of the labor market. When I was Hey, Bill, and I'm going to let you go just because your phone is breaking up, but I really take your point, and I appreciate that very much. Hey, Drew, I want to get back to you on this because, you know, I think Bill and Alicia brought up something very important. There's a certain segment of young people, certainly, who are going to be out of the market because they're going to be preparing for a career in college. They're doing all sorts of extracurricular activities. Bill and Madison mentions, you know, elite athletes uh, spending time year-round, but that's not necessarily all of the students we're talking about. There are demographics of students who don't have some of these advantages, who maybe aren't preparing the same way, and we still see major problems in them finding jobs. What can you tell us about the different demographic breakdowns, Drew, uh, of this youth unemployment crisis? Well, we do we do know, among other things, that uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers with me, but uh, uh, the government tracks whether uh, teens who are in the labor force and looking for work are in school or not, whether they're dropped out of school or they graduated from school or whether they're trying to work during school. And the unemployment rate among teens in school is a lot less, uh, I think almost half less, than uh, for teens out of school. So to a certain extent, there is a, uh, the, the, the phenomenon is really concentrated among uh, 
I hate, I hate to say it, but you know the, the teams with the least amount to bring to the to the labor force. Uh, a lot of employers want to see that educational credential, and they want to see you know, if you can get a college degree, then a college degree applicant. Well, then why why would I look at a high school? Uh, it's it may not make any sense, but there it is. Uh, one thing that we do know is uh, that it, uh, on teen un- or youth unemployment uh, varies considerably by race. Um, uh, white, the, uh, I looked at the numbers for September. White teen, the unemployment rate for white teenagers was 13.9% in September. It was 31.5%, almost a third of black teenagers in uh, last month were unemployed. 18.6% of Hispanic teenagers. Uh, if you look at the number of teens who are actually at a, employed as, as a share of the labor force, you see very similar trends. It's it's a phenomenon that if uh, that you see very much concentrated among um, minority uh, teenagers, uh, the less educated teenagers. Uh, thanks, Drew. Hang on for one second. I want to bring in Eliana Cardeno, who's uh, director of Junior Apprentices, a teen apprenticeship program here in Hartford. She joins us in the studio today. And Eliana, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You, you just heard those really sobering statistics that Drew uh, just gave out. Obviously, a lot of problems for white youth in America getting jobs, right? 13.9%. That's much higher than the national unemployment rate. But when we see a third of African-American youth un- unable to find jobs, 186 almost 19% of Hispanic youth uh, unable to find jobs. Why do we see these numbers? Why so high amongst teenagers uh, in those uh, ethnic categories? Correct. And this is something that we see very much in our program. In the Junior Apprentice, we work mostly with Hispanics and African-Americans um, in the south end of the Hartford area. And I think one of the reasons that we're seeing this is because they are, you know, they don't have that those skills that their white counterparts usually do, or they don't have the support system from their families that their white counterparts do. Um, these are, you know, kids that are coming from low-income families and are having a very difficult time. They come from single-family homes, um, and parents sometimes don't have those skills to be able to be transferable to their students and, uh, and to their kids. So we're, we're seeing a big growth in African-Americans and Hispanics that don't have the, the skills necessary to have a good career in the future or to even go into a post-secondary college. But how much of it is about the jobs themselves? I mean, if you, one of the problems we cover an awful lot on the program here is just the ability for people to get around transit, right? So if you're in a neighborhood in an urban uh, center, you probably have a limitation on how far you can go to take a job, right? You can only go as far as the bus or your your bike or your feet are going to take you. Are there the jobs in places like the South End or Greater Hartford or in any of the other cities in Connecticut that will actually be uh, the right kinds of jobs available to and attractive to these young people who you deal with? I think they are. And one of the things that we do is that we connect with local Hartford employers that want to be part of this program because they believe in these students. And one of the things that we do with Junior Apprentice is that we provide transportation. So we give them bus tokens to be able to travel to their work sites. And we've seen that this is a a big hurdle from when they are trying to find jobs is that they can't get to their work sites. They don't have transportation means. um, Their parents can't drive them to these sites. Um, So even giving them a bus token 
Republican is um, an extremely big advantage. Um, and they're willing to go that extra mile. They're willing to go take the bus and go to the work sites, whether it be in the Hartford area or, or the um, the outside cities. Uh, Alicia, before we take a break, I, I'm just wondering if you can put some of this into context. Drew gave you the numbers and Eliana gave you some of what's happening on the ground there. When we see these much higher rates among minority youth, what does this tell us about their future employment uh, availability? What does it tell us about the overall American economy, especially as we see uh, the g- demographics of America? changing so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It's really an unfortunate irony that as teenage work has declined, those who benefit the most from it have been hit the hardest. So, you know, one statistic that I found interesting was um, from a report from the Center for Labor Market Studies at Northeastern that 21% of teens from low-income families worked at all compared to 38% of teens with household incomes between 100 and 150,000. So certainly we're seeing very important um, equity issues when we're thinking about teen labor markets and, and the impacts of that in the future. Uh, Alicia Modestino is Associate Professor of Public Policy and Economics at Northeastern University. Hang on for a moment, uh, Alicia. We want to talk more with you. I also want to thank Judas Silver. He's a senior writer at the Pew Research Center. Drew, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure. In just a few moments, we're going to be talking more with uh, Eliana Cardeno, who's the director of Junior Apprentice, about their program. We're also going to be hearing from some youth here in the Hartford area. Are you a young person trying to find work? We've been talking a lot about teenagers. We're also going to be talking about young adults, 20 to 24 years old. We'll be talking with you as well. When did you first hold a job? 16, 17, 18? What did it do for you and your future career? Tweet us at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about a youth unemployment crisis in America. Connecticut's actually doing slightly better than other states, but still 15.5% unemployment for teenagers. We're also going to be talking about uh, kids who are growing up beyond the teen years, but still having trouble finding work just out of college between ages 20 to 24. Alicia Modestino is an associate professor of public policy and economics at Northeastern University. Joining us in studio here is the director of Junior Apprentice in Hartford, Eliana Cardenio. We're going to take some of your phone calls in just a moment. Very quickly, Alicia, I just wanted to get to an interesting statistical trend that I noted, which is that we hear in Connecticut all the time that young people are leaving for better opportunities elsewhere. But when you look at some of the youth unemployment rates in places that young people seem to go a lot, like North Carolina, Nevada, um, those numbers are even worse. What's happening here? I mean, are some of the growth states actually having a harder time employing people than some of the old-fashioned, old northeastern states? Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting statistic. Um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why people move. So some people move with their families. Some people move for lower housing costs, which certainly those other places have compared to the northeast. Um, and then also some people move for the what they think is the promise of a job, um, and so if you think that uh, there are more jobs to be had in Nevada and North Carolina, um, 
that might also affect your movement. One of the, you know, studies that I've done has shown that, you know, when people migrate for college, um, it also makes them more likely to migrate. So sometimes you will find that people, for example, in New England will come here for college and then stay as well. So there's kind of a lot of factors going on there. Um, one thing I wanted to return to was just some of the impacts that you were mentioning about um, different demographic groups in terms of um, jobs. And certainly, you know, foregone starter jobs probably won't cost those who are going to earn a college degree. So if you're going to college anyway, um, and if you would have been serving up pizza slices, you're not really missing out on anything important. But there have been studies that have shown that, especially for kids um, who have, you know, fewer future prospects, having that first job is really important to gain some of the soft skills that you were mentioning um, at the top of the hour. Uh, and Eliana, you and I were just talking about that, and maybe you can uh, talk through that a bit more, even from your personal experience. Look, these early jobs sometimes are so important because if an employer takes a chance on someone who maybe doesn't have all these soft skill sets, then they're able to build those skills and use them later on. If you're not able to use those early on in your career, you may never develop them, and it, and it really comes at a great cost. I know your personal story is one that I think I'll, you share with a lot of people. Yeah, and, and I completely agree with you. Um, what I was mentioning to you is that my first job was a regular retail job, and I just wanted to, you know, get a paycheck. Um, and then through a program with Buckley High School and the Hartford Financial Group, I was able to get a job when I was 16 within the Hartford Financial Group. And I actually spent almost five years at the Hartford Financial Group. And what I got the most out of that experience is my soft skills, you know, conflict resolution, um, time management, being able to just be um, in a networking environment and just feeling comfortable sharing my experiences and sharing my opinions. And I think what a lot of our students get from our experiences in their workforce and in the sites that we place them is these soft skills that we're talking about. You know, but it's interesting you say that, too, because a lot of what we talk about, when we talk about um, getting people ready for the workforce of today or whatever the heck that is. Um, we talk a lot about STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. We talk about getting people ready to to work as soon as possible. But some of the things you're talking about are, frankly, much more basic than learning engineering. It's just about learning how to come to work. And you you are a perfect example of someone who got those skills early at a high level and you're able to translate them into a career. Correct. And there was something very interesting that I read this weekend, and it said people get hired for their technical skills, but they get um, they get fired for their soft skills because <laughs> people want the technical skills. They want to see that you have a college degree and they want to see that you're educated. But when you go into a work site and you don't know how to answer the proper an email, when you don't know how to do time, you know, conflict resolution, when you don't know how to work in an interview setting or in a meeting setting, that's when the problems arise. Uh, we're going to be talking in a bit to Bruce Tolgan. Uh, he's an author who's joined us in the program before. His new book is actually called Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, How to Teach the Missing Basics to Today's Young Talent. Uh, speaking of uh, young people who are trying to get into the workforce, I want to welcome in Sincere Preston. She's a student at Hartford's Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School, joins us by phone today. Uh, and Sincere, welcome to the program. Thanks, first of all, for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So how long have you been looking for a job? I have been looking for a job for, uh, I'll say, maybe two, three months now. Um, ever since I stopped working at my summer job, I've been looking for an after-school job. And so you're you're 16 years old, so this would really be like your first real job? Yes, this will be my first real job. So where are you applying? What sort of jobs are you out there looking for? 
Um, looking at places, retail places, Walmart, um, Burlington Coat Factory, Stop and Shop, places like that. And do you have a specific goal in mind? I mean, are you trying to save for college, put some money away? I mean, what, why is it so important to, to get a job right now? Yeah, it's really important for me right now. Since I'm a junior, I'm trying to put up money for college, and books cost a lot of money, tuition, all of that. So uh, in this in this whole process, you've heard back from a few employers, but this can almost become a full-time job, right? I mean, all the, all the applying for jobs, hopefully hearing back from people. I mean, what's this whole experience been like for you? It's been pretty tough because most of the times the employers don't get back at all. But sometimes they will email me back and ask me some questions. But then when I reply to the email, I never hear from them again. So it's it's kind of a waiting game. It's it's kind of frustrating. But it's just you have to wait it out and see who's actually going to reply to you. Do, do you have a lot of friends, maybe uh, people even in your family, who've had some of the same experiences over the course of the last couple of years? Yes, I have had. I have lots of friends who are going through the same thing right now. We're all we're all around the same age group. We're all trying to find employment, and it's just been really tough for everyone. I only know about two or three people who have actually had employers reach back to them and call them in for an interview, and they actually got the job. So, Eliana, when you're listening to Sincere, what, what do you say to her? Because obviously you're dealing with a lot of young stu- students who are in the same boat. Correct. And, you know, she is the perfect example of the work, the students that we work with at Buckley High School is we are, it's a group of all juniors and we place them in, in, in job sites. And a lot of times they come to us and tell us the same things that they're, you know, she's saying is that they're having a difficult time. Um, trying to get back information from their employers or just reaching out um, overall. You know, they're competing against all these other students that are actually looking for employment as well. And they're looking for employment in places like retails or, you know, supermarkets. And what we want to provide them with is an actual career um, that they feel, you know, that they feel a connection to, that they feel a passion with. Um, So we're not just placing them in retail stores. We're not just placing them in these supermarket areas. We're placing them in job sites where they can learn all these skills that we've been talking about for the past half an hour. The, the jobs that you help to place kids in, though, are these mm-hmm. are these internships? Are these uh, paying jobs? What sort of jobs are these? Um, we actually do pay them um, a stipend and alongside with the transportation costs because we do want them to, you know, be able to save for college, with how, what she was saying. And a lot of times we get them and they come to us and say, you know, I just want to I just want to get paid some money. Um, and once they start making the money, they realize how important it is to save for the future or helping their families, even just paying for their phone bills or paying for that babysitter so they can actually go to the work side. Um, so we've noticed all these trends and that they want to make the money, but once they do have that money, they want to save it as well. Uh, Sincere, as you're listening to this, I'm wondering what you think about this notion because, look, one thing that that is more available for high school students, certainly college students once you get there, is the stipend or the low-paid internship that gets you some really important skills, but maybe doesn't help you to pay the bills. So talk about that. I mean, how important is it to just save up some money for college? How important might it be to maybe not worry about the money so much, but get some real great job experience along the way? Yeah, um, definitely. My school, they have something like that in uh an internship where their um, capital with capital workforce, they came and talked to kids, talked to some of us um, about an internship, and 
they said that some of the times the internships turn into real jobs, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, any opportunity to work, I'm pretty sure lots of people my age are grateful for, but sometimes it's like in this place that they're putting me in, am I going to get actual experience with things that I want to do later on? and things like that. and, um, I, and so, I, Well, I was just going to say, I know it's a little early. You're 16 years old. Do you know what you want to do or, uh, later on in life? Yes, I'm actually looking into either becoming a photographer or I'm really interested in psychology and human studies and things of like that. Well, Sincere Preston, uh, a, a student at Hartford's Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School, I want to thank you for spending some time. Good luck on your job search. We want to check back in with you and find out how things are going. I, I really appreciate you taking some time. Thank you. Thank you for having me so much. I want to bring in quickly, uh, once again, Alicia Modestino from Northeastern University, who's been listening into some of this conversation. And boy, there's a lot to talk about, Alicia. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, is programs like the one that Eliana runs or some of the types of programs that a young person like Sincere could really benefit from take a lot of government funding, right? In some cases, uh, big corporations are floating programs like this, but a lot of this comes from the funding, and it just seems, whether it's at the municipal level, the state level, or the federal level, money like this is harder to come by. What can you tell us about government funding for programs like this? Absolutely. this uh, Funding for these programs is essential, and um, during the 1990s when we were pretty much close to full employment or even beyond full employment, you saw a lot of federal money dry up for these types of programs. The federal government essentially walked away from summer job programs entirely. And so, uh, especially here in Massachusetts and Boston, uh, Mayor Menino uh, was one of the few um, who saw the promise of these programs and decided that they would fund it uh, with city money, with state money, and they would uh, go out and seek private money as well. And that's been essential for keeping these programs open. And his basic um, reason for this was that these are teens who are not going to have the same opportunities, the same networks, the same jobs in their neighborhoods as teens who are better off. And so for them, these are the stepping stones to finding that first job, to earning those soft skill, you know, soft skills, and also for you know creating some aspirations for future careers. I have to ask you, Alicia, how this whole debate over minimum wage in America might change any of this stuff. I mean, the amount that employers decide to pay people is something that's always been an incredibly controversial topic. And the rules used to be quite a bit different. I mean, I remember my work-study job, uh, my first work-study job in radio, as a matter of fact, making something around $3 an hour. And I was very happy to have that $3 an hour. But at the end of the day, it's hard to save for a whole lot when that's the sort of money you're making. We're having a a big conversation in America right now about whether the minimum wage as it is should stay there or whether or not we should blow away past it and go up to something like a livable wage of $15 an hour. Might this, Alicia, exacerbate an existing problem with youth skills? I mean, employers, if they're already unwilling to to employ a lot of young people at seven, eight, nine dollars an hour, they probably really won't want to hire a 19 or 20 year old at 15 bucks an hour. Yeah, it is a really delicate balance. As we have seen more and more adults shifting into minimum wage jobs that were previously held by a lot of teenagers, you get more of an impetus for creating a living wage for those jobs so that those people can support their families. At the same time, 
when you do raise the wage to the degree that we're talking about here, we're talking about almost doubling it, which is something we have never seen before. We don't really know the employment effects of it. But I can definitely tell you that those who will suffer the adverse consequences in terms of losing their jobs will be the least skilled, which will most likely be teens. So there is a real delicate balance here. And I know there's been talk about maybe creating a two-tier minimum wage that you know applies differentially to teens versus adults. Um, that could be one way to get around this. But it is a very sticky situation. Elliot, do you have thoughts about this? Because this is a really important issue, right? I mean, you want to make sure people can enter the workforce at whatever level they can. But at the same point, we want to make sure people are being paid a, a fair and living wage. How, how do you think this might affect everything? Correct. And I definitely do agree. It's it's a difficult it's a difficult balance because you want to make sure that you have the skills necessary to be able to, you know, do that job. But at the same time, a lot of employers are saying if they raise the minimum wage, will I be able to, um, you know, to hire as many people or will I be able to continue to have, you know, my company? Um, You know, we're thinking of smaller business, for example, there might not be able to hire as many people or they more, might go out of business because the minimum wage is raised. And would I take a chance on a young Correct. minority person who mm-hmm. maybe his first job really has some, some great skills, but I might need to bring up a little bit, do I want to take that, that gamble at a higher wage? Correct. And this goes back to the conversation we were having is, why would I take that gamble on a younger individual that doesn't have the skills or the experience where I can take someone that's 30, 35 years old that has the skills and that has both the technical and soft skills, and I can still pay them the same amount because it's a higher minimum wage. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Bruce Tolgan, uh, whose new book is called Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, How to Teach the Missing Basics to Young Talent Today. I want to thank our guest, Alicia Modestino, an associate professor of public policy and economics at Northeastern University. Thanks for all your expertise, Alicia. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You can continue this conversation where we live at WNPR.org. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today we're talking about youth employment, more specifically youth unemployment, something that's been trending downward for quite some time now. We're trying to figure out why with Eliana Cardeno. She's the director of Junior Apprentice. It's a teen apprenticeship program in Hartford that's a program of the Hartford Consortium for Higher Education. She's been joining us with some of her expertise. Joining us now by phone is Bruce Tolgan. He's founder and CEO of Rainmaker Thinking, Inc. in New Haven. He's also a best-selling author whose latest book is called Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, How to Teach the Missing Basics to Today's Young Talent. Bruce has joined us on the phone in the past, in, in studio in the past, to talk about some of these issues. And, Bruce, it's good to have you back on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me back on the show. You know, we were talking about these soft and hard skills and, and with our guests before. Uh, this is something your whole book's about. So, first of all, let's just talk about the deficit. I mean, what are some of the, the issues that employers are saying they have with young workers, maybe uh, problems that, that previous generations haven't shown? Well, you know, the soft skills gap is not a household term like the technical skills gap, uh, but it has been growing for decades. And 
you know, we've been looking at young people in the workplace for more than 20 years now, and increasingly, uh, as employers are concerned about the technical skill gap, uh, they're also telling us that there is this widening soft skills gap. Uh, young people in the workplace today, uh, that they don't have the same level of self-awareness, people skills, um, basic problem solving. Um, and as, of course, some of your guests earlier were talking about young people, so many of them don't have opportunities uh, to work as much as they did in the past. And so maybe they don't have uh, those same opportunities to develop those soft skills. You know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. But uh, young people, they have so much to offer uh, today. Uh, but uh, they're sort of driving the grown-ups crazy uh, because of their lack of soft skills. And so a lot of employers, uh, given the choice, uh, they prefer to hire older, more experienced people. And because of changes in the labor market, often older, more experienced people are available. Uh, but uh, this growing soft skills gap, uh, it's a problem that's been hiding in plain sight uh, for for a long time, and well, it's been growing. Well, uh, some of the things that, that you talk to managers about and the things that they're saying about young workers include, you know, uh, things like they just don't know how to behave professionally. They arrive late, they leave early, they dress inappropriately. They don't have enough ex- respect for authority. Now, these are all things that employers today are saying about young people. I can imagine that some employers said about the same things in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. I mean, how much different, Bruce, is it than it was when we were growing up and trying to find work? Yeah, well, there's a long-range term of art we use to describe this phenomenon. We call it kids today. Uh, you know, and, and of course, there's always, you know, young people, by definition, they're less experienced. Uh, by definition, maybe uh, they're reflecting a shift in norms and values and mores, and, uh, and, and so they don't have the same kind of old-fashioned professionalism uh, or the same kind of old-fashioned critical thinking, or uh, they don't respect authority or uh, have the same kind of old-fashioned citizenship. And maybe in, in, in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, you know, each generation gap, uh, that's what the grown-ups are saying about the young people. Uh, but uh, we've been tracking this for 20 years now, uh, and there does seem to be a longitudinal change, and it does seem to uh, have a generational nature to it. Um, and one set of reasons are the macro reasons, the larger economic reasons. Uh, one set of reasons are the micro reasons, you know, uh, the, the hyper-helicopter parenting. Uh, so many young people today, uh, uh, they've, they've had a different kind of standard to which they've been held by parents, teachers, counselors. Uh, another reason is technology, uh, that uh, young people, they think and learn and communicate uh, using uh, handheld supercomputers, uh, and so they don't have the same kind of communication skills, and they don't have the same kinds of opportunities to puzzle through problems. Uh, maybe that's part of where uh, this perceived diminution in critical thinking is coming from. And frankly, uh, you know, kind of old-fashioned service mindset uh, is out of fashion. Uh, conformism is out of fashion. Uh, young people today, they're like the ultimate nonconformists in an era of nonconformism. And if, if, if you don't value conformism, if nobody's ever taught you, hey, maybe sometimes you say please and thank you, uh, and you dress properly, uh, and you treat older, more experienced people with respect, like, you know, uh, that's like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, kids today, they don't know how to communicate properly, uh, and they're never told 
Uh, not all styles are equally valid. Not everyone gets a trophy. Uh, that some styles are more appropriate than others. Well, I want to I, uh, I want to ask Eliana about this because obviously you're you're dealing with kids all the time, and I'm wondering how many of these these things resonate with you. This notion that an awful lot of the young people who are are living with devices in their hands all the time, checking their phones constantly, have a very different expectation of face-to-face uh, conversation, certainly have a different expectation of conformity than a lot of places would like. I mean, if you're going to go work for a chain restaurant, say, you know, you got to be pretty conformist in the way you do an awful lot of things, and you're probably dealing with a lot of kids who reject that notion altogether, right? Absolutely. Um, in one of the things that we do in our program with our career success um, class is that we teach some basic skills and even um, the idea, for example, self-marketing. Um, they have this notion of self-marketing online, you know, through social media, through Instagram and Facebook. But how do you self-market yourself on a face-to-face level, you know, mm-hmm. on a personal level? <laughs> so the interviewing skills are extremely important um, or even the simplest of things that we were saying, you know, not to use your phone when you're in a meeting or please put your phone on vibrate because it's going to interrupt the conversations that you're having. Um, so the most of simple skills that we believe or the older generations believe um, to them is just simple to them. They have their phones with them at all times. So why would they put it away? Or, you know, they've created this brand online. Can they use that same brand on a personal level? And we have to tell them that it's not the same. And how many of these skills are you teaching on a regular basis with with the kids you deal with at Junior Apprentice? I mean, we have the class all year long. So you can just imagine we're going through things like conflict resolution, again, self-marketing, interviewing skills. So it's a consistent level of um, teaching about these soft and technical skills that they get from their employers, but hopefully the soft skills that they get from us in the class. So, so Bruce, you're listening to Elena talk about this and trying to get these skills into students' hands before they get into the work workplace. I mean, where do you think young people, Bruce, are supposed to get these skills? Are are the employers on the hook for hiring someone first and then teaching them how to do all this stuff later? Well, uh, nowadays, parents are less likely uh, to teach young people these uh, things. Uh, schools have been less likely, but there has been a shift. So schools are now hearing so much uh, from employers uh, that young people lack these skills. Uh, there has been a shift back to that. But look, uh, employers, they don't have a bunch of extra time or resources to pull their young people out of work and send them to soft skills training. Uh, but we do a lot of work with the United States Armed Forces. Uh, they rely on young people uh, for critical work. It's not an accident that the Marines, you know, the first 13 weeks, uh, they have this onboarding program. Perhaps you've heard of it, you know, 24 <laughs> hours a day. Now, you might make the point, yeah, they've always done that. Uh, but, in fact, we've worked for the military for decades now, and there has been a change there, too. Uh, so some employers, employers that rely on young people more, you mentioned uh, quick service restaurants, uh, retail, uh, uh, health care, uh, where there's um, a huge staffing shortage, um, sometimes uh, forced to hire young people uh, and do more on-the-job training. Uh, employers uh, that rely on young people more, they are dedicating more resources to teaching these soft skills to young people. Uh, schools have started to turn their attention back to it. Um, there are some kind of counter-trend parenting uh, movements where parents are uh, you know, making young people say please and thank you again 
um, there's there's definitely a growing awareness uh, of this growing soft skills gap among young people. We, and, we, 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 we got a tweet from our friend, uh, Professor Kalila Brown-Dean at Quinnipiac. She says, it's a shift in parenting, a decline in civility, increased entitlement, and a de-emphasis on critical thinking. Uh, Luis tweets at us, taking on a youth employee has to go beyond the company bottom line of profit. You are growing the capacity of a fellow human. Let's quickly go to the phones. Omar's in stores. Hi, Omar. You're on where we live. Hi. I just wanted to say something real quick. So I got my first job at 16 in Glastonbury. I'm at the surgery center. I basically came in with no skills at all, and that job taught me all about administrative work. And I had my first experience with insurance, and I actually got my first opportunity to see the influence insurance has on healthcare. And it's what galvanized me to pursue a career in medicine, and I feel like a lot of students and 16-year-olds should have that opportunity. And I'm going to be going to UConn School of Medicine next year. And one thing I really liked about Glastonbury is that the Glastonbury High School actually had a job Posting. So all the local jobs in Glastonbury would post postings, openings for students at the high school. And I thought it was a wonderful opportunity. And I feel like had I not worked there at 16 years old, I would have probably been somewhere else completely. Omar, thank you very much for sharing that story. And that, there's a story that actually speaks to the very specific um, experience someone has at 16 years old, setting them on a path for the rest of their lives. Correct. And this is something that Sincere mentioned. She said, why would I take some of those internships that they're offering me when it's not something that I'm interested? But how would you know that you're not interested in that career if you've never tried it before? So we've noticed with our students before is that they are placed in these apprenticeship programs and in these work sites that they never even thought that they were available, these jobs that they never even thought that they were out there. And it's changed the way they think of future careers. And, you know, it sort of like Omar said, it sort of paves the path for where you are going to um, go ahead in the future. So, Bruce, we just have a few minutes left, but maybe you can pick up on that and and tell managers out there, uh, people who run small businesses or even large businesses, what you think they can do to help get some of these skills across, because as we've been hearing from Luis and Omar and Eliana, it really can not only set up a good employee for you, but it can really change the the quality and the trajectory of someone's life. So what do you say to employers to, to do here? Yeah, I mean, there's a tension between the business interests because, of course, employers are not in the business of building up the soft skills of young people. Uh, and that's one of the reasons government has to play a role, schools have to play a role, uh, parents have to play a role. Uh, these uh, public service-oriented programs uh, that are dedicated to that public interest, teaching young people and preparing them. Um, employers, uh, they're just not in the business of building up young people, so they only do it if it's in their business interest. Um, you can't hire your way around the soft skills gap uh, because this is a growing problem. Often the young people who have the technical skills are the ones who can get away most with uh, kind of turning their nose up at the soft skills. Um, Yeah, that's just not how I do it. That's not my style. Uh, But what we tell employers, that if you have young people in the workplace, uh, you're going to have to make a commitment to this more and more. Uh, My advice to employers is figure out which soft skills are really the high-priority soft skills for, for your business, for the particular roles you're hiring young people into, uh, and find ways to build in uh, mentoring and coaching uh, and building up these uh, soft skills for young people in ways that help them learn and grow, uh, but also are in the best interest of the business. 
Um, and that's our advice to employers that ultimately they have to get a return on investment out of their investment in the soft skills of young people, uh, but that there, there are good ways to do that. Um, and look, there's no shortcut. Uh, that he, 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 often what happens is uh, a coaching style manager uh, who's willing to invest that extra time uh, as um, a teacher, as a coach in the real world, a real young person in the real world. Maybe the return on investment comes over time, or maybe it's not in business terms, but in human terms. Bruce Tulgan is author of Bridging the Soft Skills Gap and many other books. This book's subtitled How to Teach the Missing Basics to Today's Young Talent. Bruce, always good to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us today on Where yes, We Live. Sir, thank you. It's an honor uh, to be on your show. Uh, and Eliana, before I let you go, I should just ask, a lot of people have been calling us up and saying their first job is at 14, 15 years old. Do you think some of these students are just starting too late? I mean, we used to have youth employment for people younger than 16. We're only talking about maybe getting into it at 16 years old now. Yeah, no, and I think it's a great time to start at 16 and 15. And one of the reasons that we are working with juniors is that we want to provide them with, you know, the skills and the goals to be able to go on into senior year and then make the informed decisions to then go on to a a college and getting a college degree. Um, So I think it's really important. And 15 and 16, I think it's great because then again, they're balancing athletics and they're balancing um, school um, events and and clubs. Um, So I, I think 16 is a great is a great age. Eliana Cardeno is director of Junior Apprentice. It's a teen apprenticeship program based here in Hartford. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. Our program was produced today by Amanda Gallagher. Thank you, Amanda. Olivia Brown helped out along with Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Solarski. Thanks to Zach LaSala for doing the phones today. If you want to continue this conversation about youth unemployment online, go to WNPR.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.